Hello, everyone, and welcome to Discussions in Dragons, the podcast where my brother and I take an in-depth look at the world of 5e and all things Dungeons and Dragons. Opening and closing music credit to Will Savino at patreon.com slash musicd20. I'm Britton. And I'm Jaren. And this week, we're continuing our serialized look at the new sourcebook for 5th edition titled Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. Tasha's has introduced new and optional rules for character creation, as well as a ton of new subclasses for players to choose from. This week, we're focusing on the fighter and monk classes and everything that Tasha's has to offer for them. So this week, we divvied it up, and Jaren is actually taking fighter first. So I'm really curious, because this has a pretty hefty section about fighters. What did you find that was new, and what do you feel about all that? Well, yeah, this is very exciting. We have a lot of new features and options, including some new maneuvers, new fighting styles, and two new martial archetypes for fighters. So first up, the optional class features. And once again, just a reminder, these are optional. Please consult with the DM before simply diving into these. Uh, But at first level, we have a number of fighting styles to choose from. Um, Again, once you take a first level in fighter, you choose one of these fighting styles. Um, and Tasha's gives us five new ones. I'm going to go through them quickly because we've got a lot to cover in later sections of Fighter. But first up is Blind Fighting, which gives you 10 feet of blind sight. You can see anything that isn't behind total cover. And you can see invisible creatures unless they successfully hide from you. We've got Interception, which lets you use your reaction to reduce the damage done to an ally by 1d10 plus your proficiency bonus. This has a range of 5 feet, and you must be wielding a shield or some sort of martial weapon. We've got Superior Technique, which lets you choose a maneuver from the Battlemaster archetype list, um, which again, Battlemaster is one of the martial archetypes you choose at 3rd level, one of the fighter paths. And the same sort of rules apply if you take Superior Technique. Um, You get this weird thing called Superiority Die, which fuels the maneuver. The save DC is calculated the same way. Um, The difference here, since you're getting a maneuver that ordinarily would be accessible at third level, but at first level, your Superiority Die is a D6 instead of a D8, and you get one of them instead of four of them. Um, Those dice refresh after a short or long rest. Um, And also of note, you can still take Battlemaster as a third level archetype and add some more maneuvers to your list. So Superior Technique, you get to choose one of those maneuvers at first level. We have thrown weapon fighting as a fighting style, which allows you to draw a weapon that has the thrown property as part of the attack. Um, Additionally, you get a plus two bonus to damage when you hit hit with it as a ranged attack. And lastly, of the new fighting style options, we have unarmed fighting, which gives your unarmed strikes a bit of a boost in terms of damage. They deal 1d6 plus your strength mod in, in bludgeoning damage. If you aren't wielding a shield or weapon, that actually becomes a D8 plus strength mod. And also, if a creature is grappled by you, at the start of your turn, you can just deal 1D4 bludgeoning to it. And I'm going to come back to this one specifically because I think it combos well with one of the maneuvers in Tasha's. So those are the new fighting styles we have available at first level. At fourth level, in the optional class features, we have martial versatility which this works similarly to some things we've seen in previous classes that we've reviewed from Tasha's. Um, Once you unlock this ability, it happens anytime um, you can gain a level that improves an ability score. You can uh, either change out a fighting style to a new one or swap out a maneuver that you have from the Battlemaster archetype. Um, And the book wasn't entirely clear if this excluded or included a maneuver from the superior technique. I assume that it would, since superior technique gives you access to a maneuver from that list. 
Um, but that that kind of wraps it up for the the optional class features. Well, that's kind of cool though. The the martial versatility. Uh, to be honest, fighter is probably one of the last things that I have in mind whenever I'm thinking about playing a new character. So I think that's really cool. Um, in in accordance with how all these spellcasters now have like bardic versatility, eldritch versatility, they can swap out their cantrips. I like the fact that you can decide, well, this fighting maneuver doesn't work for me anymore, so I want to swap that out. Right, right. And it also uh, makes it so that if you, you know, picked something when you were brand new at the class or brand new as a player and then later decided that you didn't quite like that style, you're not hard stuck with a decision you made from four months ago, for example. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, continuing on, we have a whole list of new maneuvers. Um, I'm not going to list all of them because we got a lot of more material to cover. I'm going to list the, uh, the two that were the most interesting to me, to me. A lot of what these do are simply adding your superiority die roll to some sort of ability or check or uh, weapon attack. Um, the two that I found most interesting were bait and switch and grappling strike. And bait and switch, what this does, you can um, choose a target. It has to be within five feet of you and a willing target, not incapacitated. You spend your superiority die and switch places on your turn at the cost of five feet of movement. This swap does not provoke opportunity attacks. Uh, and also, either you or the target gains a bonus AC equal to that superiority die roll until the start of your next turn. So I think it's kind of a cool tactical and defensive uh, maneuverability in the middle of combat. Yeah, very, very Fire Emblem for anybody that's plays those games. Um, yeah, it's. I like that fighters are getting more and more tactical. I, I know that that's kind of their whole, their whole thing. I would actually say, for people that love combat, to shy away from spellcasters and get more into fighting because you can think critically and you can position yourself and maneuver yourself uh, to make these tactical decisions. I think that's that's pretty cool. Yeah, definitely. That's definitely one of the more interesting ones that I found in Tasha's. Uh, the other one, a Grappling Strike, and I said I was going to come back to um, one of the earlier fighting styles that we talked about. What Grappling Strike does is after you hit with a melee attack, you can spend a superiority die uh, to attempt to grapple as a bonus action. Um, you could add your superiority die roll to the athletics check when you go to attempt to grapple. Um, as a reminder, your uh, DC for that's going to be 8 plus proficiency plus either your strength or dex mod, your choice. Um, so I wanted to say I think definitely if you're taking the unarmed fighting style and deciding to go the Battlemaster archetype, this is definitely a maneuver you want to take. Um, if you think about it, you're going to be um, attempting to make that uh, that grapple as part of the bonus action, burning the superiority die. And then if you're the unarmed fighting style, at the start of the turn, it's just an additional D4. Um, and also it's just going to be um, a D6 strength mod anyways if you're just attempting to um, hit them with a unarmed strike for your melee attack. So all around, I think this is a really good combination. Oh, yeah. That's really cool. I, I like that, that grappling strike feature. Yeah, absolutely. So as, as a reminder, these maneuvers um, are, are part of the Battlemaster archetype. Um, you get to choose two of them. You get more access uh, on later levels. Um, but I think we're going to move on now and talk about a bulk of what I wanted to, to talk about with the fighter class, the two new martial archetypes that I'm excited about. And first up, we have the Psy Warrior. That's P-S-I. Um, this subclass, this martial archetype, 
augments the physical might with these psi-infused weapon strikes, these telekinetic lashes, and these barriers of mental force. And we've seen psionics in pretty much every edition of D&D, and in fact, 4th edition had an entire book devoted to the psionics. And in Tasha's in 5th in edition, we're seeing it in the form of this martial archetype, the Psy Warrior. And at 3rd level, we have the psionic power feature. And this sort of works kind of like the superiority die of the, of the Battlemaster archetype. You get these new things called psionic energy dice, which are D6s. Um, going forward, I'm going to refer to these as energy die because psionic energy die is a bit of a mouthful. Uh, but these energy die, D6s, you have a number of them equal to twice your proficiency bonus. They fuel different abilities that we're going to talk about. Um, but noteworthy here is because it's twice your proficiency bonus, the number that you get actually scales a lot faster than superiority dice do. To give you some hard numbers, uh, at third level, you have four of them. You get six at fifth, eight at ninth, 10 at 13th, and then 12 at 17th level versus the superiority die, which are four, five, and six at third, seventh, and 15th level. Um, you regain all uses of these energy die after a long rest. Also, once per short or long rest, you can bonus action regain a die. And the dice themselves actually scale as well. They become a D8, D10, and D12 at 5th, 11th, and 17th level. So as you get stronger, not only are you getting more of them, but they're becoming uh, bigger and bigger dice. So the three abilities that you get at 3rd level with this new psionic power, we have Protective Field, which lets you create this momentary shield of psionic force. It's got a range of 30 feet. You can use your reaction and spend one of these energy die, and it reduces the damage done to a creature that you can see within that range by the energy die roll plus your intelligence modifier. Second one we have is Psionic Strike. This lets you propel your weapons with this psionic force. And once per turn, after you hit with a weapon against a creature within 30 feet, you can spend an energy die and you deal additional force damage equal to the roll plus your intelligence modifier. Third one what we have is called telekinetic movement. This allows you to move a loose object or a creature with your mind, the power of telekinesis. The target has to be large or smaller or be a willing creature other than yourself. It's got a range of 30 feet and you can move it up to 30 feet. Um, any direction actually. If it's a tiny object, you can just move it to or from your hand. Um, you can do this ability once per short or long rest, or you can use it again if you just spend one of these energy die. So those are the three abilities you get right at third level with this new psionic power, this new psionic energy die. Dang, all I'm I'm already thinking, finally, fighters that are not just like head empty, no thoughts, going into battle. This is brains and bronze. Since this is based off of your int mod, again, uh, you could really make a very intelligent fighter. Maxing, if you maybe don't want to do dex, if you want to like max strength and intelligence or dex and intelligence and make a dexterous intelligent like tactical warrior that uses their psionic energy yeah certainly you no longer have to dump all your stats into strength as a fighter you can approach it a little bit differently and then take the uh the psi warrior class so continuing on we've got um some new abilities that add to the list at seventh level we have uh the feature called telekinetic adept which has two new abilities first up is psi powered leap which allows you to finally propel yourself, to propel your body with your mind. As a bonus action, you gain flying speed equal to twice your walking speed until the end of your turn. You get to use this ability once per short or long rest. 
again once unless you spend one of these energy die to take it again so i think this adds just yet another element of tactical maneuverability to fighters uh, at seventh level being able to uh, burn an energy die and uh, suddenly you have you know for example 60 feet of flying speed for that turn and I, I like that it's called Psy Powered Leap because it's not just like you're flying. It's very uh, like House of Flying Daggers or Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, where you are launching yourself through the own the sheer power of your psionics, launching yourself across the battlefield. Exactly. You are Neo. You are Neo. <laughs> okay. The other ability that we have with this seventh level telekinetic adept is one called Telekinetic Thrust. You use this after you deal damage with the psionic strike. As a reminder, the psionic strike is that third level ability that you get, um, that you uh, burn the energy die and deal that extra force damage. Uh, after dealing damage with this, the target makes a strength save, uh, the DC being, once again, your 8 plus proficiency plus intelligence mod. On fail, you knock the target prone or move them 10 feet in any direction horizontally. So kind of similar to some um, abilities we've seen, like in uh, in Warlock, some of the, the Eldritch invocations do something kind of similar. Um, nice to be able to do this with uh, with Fighter, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So not only dealing extra damage, but also um, perhaps moving them tactically around the battlefield, maybe into uh, a druid's web of thorns or something like that. Shoving um, them off a cliff. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, so that's at 7th level. At... 10th level, I think the, the abilities start to fall off here until we get to the, the last ability at 18th, but continuing on at 10th level, we have the feature called Guarded Mind. Um, thanks to the psionic energy flowing through your body, you now have this uh, strengthened mind. You gain resistance to psychic damage, and it, also you can spend one of these energy die to end every effect causing you to be charmed or frightened, similar to like Monk's um, Stillness of Mind 7th level feature. Uh, I don't think this is the most exciting feature. Um, psychic damage resistance is kind of neat. I don't really see psychic damage coming up too often, but the ability to end every effect causing you to be charmed or frightened, I think is pretty cool. Yeah, that's really nice. Um, I, I don't want to out any DMs that I've played with before, but um, metagaming wise, I know that several DMs that I've played with, you know, if if you want to charm somebody and make them on your side, who are you going to charm? The fighter or the barbarian that's going to whack your team for D12s versus, uh, worth of damage. Yeah, that is, that is true. So I, I guess maybe this is a bit more useful than I initially thought it was. Being able to end those those effects are really nice, especially frightened, because as a DM, if you know that somebody's going to dump out some damage, who are you going to make frightened of you? The yeah, fighter. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So anyways, moving on, at 15th level, we have the feature called Bulwark of Force. You are, are now able to start shielding yourself and your allies with this telekinetic force. This ability has a range of 30 feet, and as a bonus action, you choose a number of creatures up to your intelligence modifier. Each creature chosen is protected by half cover for up to one minute or until you're incapacitated. Um, as a reminder, half cover grants a plus two bonus to AC and to dex saves. You get to use this once per long rest unless you spend an energy die to use it again. Um, so I think this is probably, it's not flashy, but I think this could certainly be very useful in the middle of combat. Yeah, that's kind of like what we saw last week with the Twilight Cleric's level 17 feature that if you're in their bubble, you get half cover. Um, so initially hearing this now, I'm like, oh, well, 
and it kind of makes the the 17th level feature for clerics not so great but i you know you can only use it again once per long rest unless you spend a psionic energy die to do it again yeah and again at fi at 15th level you're getting quite a number of these energy die so i, I think you're going to be able to use this a lot more frequently than it might look on the surface at 15th level and getting plus two bonus to basically your whole team, as long as they're within a certain range, I think is going to be pretty useful. Yeah, that's pretty strong at 15th level because you're going to be fighting things at 15th level, CR 20, if not more. Yeah, definitely. Um, anyways, moving on, we have the the final ability of the Psy Knight, which is an 18th level feature called Telekinetic Master. This now allows you to cast the spell Telekinesis without components. Your spellcasting ability is your intelligence um, on each turn while concentrating on the spell, including when you cast it, you can use a bonus action to make one weapon attack. You can do this once per long rest unless you spend an energy die to cast it again. And just to give you all a reminder of what Telekinesis is, since I had to look it up, because I've never actually cast the spell before, it is a fifth level transmutation spell. You can target a creature uh, or object, um, a creature that is huge or smaller. So basically, I had to look this up as well to see like what types of creatures were bigger than huge. This is basically end of campaign bosses like ancient dragons that are bigger than huge. That's the gargantuan size. So uh, th that's the target. It's a, uh, a contest of their strength versus your spell casting. Um, if they fail, you can just move that creature 30 feet in any direction. They're considered restrained. And as an action on subsequent turns, you can continue making that check. Or you choose an object that weighs up to 1,000 pounds. And if it's not being worn or carried, you just move it 30 feet in any direction. Uh, or if it is being worn or carried, again, it's a, a, a contested strength versus spellcasting check. Hmm. So a, a lot of possibilities with this one. Um, it's really interesting that they're giving fighters the ability to cast a spell. This makes sense with the, the Psy Knight, your ability to use the power of the mind to do certain things. And, you know, now having the ability to cast this telekinesis spell to finally be able to move objects or creatures with your mind. Um, certainly, this is not a, I'm going to use my sword to hit something for, you know, 6d8 damage. This is, I'm going to use my mind and I'm going to have to actually, actually think about what we're going to do in combat um, or I'm going to move them somewhere where they're a lot more vulnerable and then I'm going to hit them as a bonus action. Yeah. And you get that guaranteed bonus action while you're concentrating on this spell. Mm -hmm. uh, and being able to do this uh, again at 18th level, you've got quite a bit of uh, energy dice. You're going to be able to do this multiple, multiple times. So uh, all in all, I think this is a really neat class. Um, I, I like, and I, we're going to see this in the the next martial archetype, but I think a lot of what they get to do, a lot of the cool things are at those uh, early and mid-game mid uh, levels, third level and seventh level. You don't have to wait until the very end until you're 10th level plus in order to start doing really cool things with this class, uh, which I really appreciate. As a player, it's nice to know that I'm not going to have to play for six months until I can finally start doing cool things with my class. Yeah, and it makes fighters a lot more useful rather than just thinking about, okay, well, they're the damage dealers. You've, you're a well-balanced party, I think, should have uh, a fighter because it's, it's a good, especially with these uh, two subclasses, they are a good mid-range, mid-game uh, character with these features that come up and are very useful in combat 
mid-game. Like you said, you don't have to wait super long to get some of these things and feel useful for your team. Yeah, absolutely. And that's uh, not even considering the possibilities of what you could do with, um, you know, depending on what archetype you, uh, not archetype, but what sort of fighting style that you chose at first level. You know, with all of this, I almost completely forgot about the different fighting styles. I know, there's a lot of options for, for fighters. And uh, as we're going to see as I get to the end, um, there's another really cool thing that Tasha's added in that I think makes it a lot easier for players of all different experience levels to approach the fighter class. But that about does it for this archetype. Moving on to the second archetype, which I think is really cool, is one called Rune Knight, R-U-N-E. Um, this uses the supernatural power of runes, that ancient practice that originated with the giants. You get to apply these supernatural powerful runes to your gear and to your weapons. Um, the save DC for what these runes get to do is going to be 8 plus your proficiency bonus plus con mod, so it's based on your constitution. Um, you get uh, bonus proficiencies at third level. You get uh, proficiency with smith schools, and you learn to speak, read, and write giant. And uh, at third level, we have um, the feature called Rune Carver, which is kind of what this subclass with this martial archetype is centered around. Uh, this is where you start being able to carve these new runes into your gear. And um, this works while you're wearing or carrying. So you have to have whatever item you inscribe these runes into on your person when in order to use these abilities. At third level, you choose two of these runes. You can replace one each time you gain a level. Um, Tasha's offers us six runes. Four of them are immediately available at third level. Two require you to be seventh level or higher. And at... Uh, at each level, you're going you're to be able to uh, gain access to additional ones. So you know two, three, four, and five of these runes at 3rd, 7th, 10th, and 15th level. And to go over what these things are, first up we have the Cloud Rune, which this one emulates the deceptive magic of the Cloud Giants. You have advantage on sleight of hand and deception checks. And additionally, once per short or long rest, you can in invoke the rune and redirect a target hit by an attack with a 30-foot range to another target. No check, you just invoke the rune and redirect the target. We have Fire Rune, which uh, channels the expert, masterful craftsmanship of the great smiths. You get to double your proficiency bonus for checks made with smith's tools. And additionally, once per short or long rest, when you hit a creature with a weapon attack, you can invoke the rune and they take an additional 2d6 fire damage. They also have to make a strength save and on fail, they are restrained for one minute by these fiery shackles. Uh, they take 2d6 fire damage at the start of each turn, and they can try to save at the end of each subsequent turn. We have the Frost Rune, which invokes the might of these winter survivalists. In other words, the Frost Giants. You gain advantage on animal handling and on intimidation checks. And additionally, once per short or long rest, you can bonus action to get plus two to all strength or constitution checks and saves for 10 minutes. And lastly, at third level, you have access to the stone rune, which allows you to channel the wisdom of the mighty stone giants. You have an advantage on insight checks and you have 120 feet of dark vision. And additionally, once per short or long rest, you can invoke the rune and target a creature that ends its turn within 30 feet of you. And on a failed wisdom save, that target is charmed by you for one minute, uh, their speed, speed becomes zero, and they're effectively incapacitated as they are in this dreamy state of being charmed by you. 
at seventh level, we have two new runes that you gain access to. Um, you unlock the ability to add to your repertoire. Um, we have the hill rune, which allows you to call on the resilience of the stone giants. You have advantage on saves against being poisoned and also have resistance to poison damage. Also, once per short or long rest, you invoke the rune and as a bonus action, you gain resistance to bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing damage for one minute. So the kind of effect that I think is really useful, knowing that you're about to go into battle or even um, since you can do it as a bonus action, you can do it after initiative's already begun. Um, the other and last of the runes is the Storm Rune, which you gain a glimpse into the future like a storm giant. You have advantage on Arcana checks and you also can't be surprised. Additionally, once per short or long rest, um, you invoke the rune, and as a bonus action, you enter this prophetic state for one minute. You choose a target uh, within 60 feet of you, and you can use your reaction to give them advantage or disadvantage on uh, one attack, save, or check. So those are the runes. I think they're all quite powerful, even the early ones at third level. Yeah. Um, having listened to all of that, I think this is really cool that each rune has intrinsically something that makes it magical, and then invoking it makes it even more magical, and you have an additional effect that can really help you. Um, the the one that actually really stood out to me was the fire rune, being able to summon those fiery shackles, doing additional fire damage, and restraining. Um, yeah, I think that's, absolutely. That's really cool. And I, I, I really appreciate that narratively, I know this was obviously on purpose, but... I still think that it's it's very cool, and I appreciate it that narratively, these are all based off of the different types of giants, and thematically fits into either what they do or the essence of what that giant is. Uh, for instance, that seventh level one for storm the storm rune that you were talking about, being able to see into the future just like storm giants. I think that's that's so cool that they added these flavors, especially for people who enjoy the giants and enjoy you know the the different giant lords and the lore of that. Yeah, absolutely. And as somebody who is currently running a game based on giants, running the Storm King's Thunder, I, I can really appreciate just thematically how these uh, are really characteristic to each type of giant. Um, and before we move on, just as a, a point of note, um, at, at third level you gain two runes, and you can uh, inscribe one rune on on a different piece of gear, right? So you can in, uh, inscribe, you know, two fire runes. It's you gain two runes and you get to inscribe them each one time, right? Gotcha. So there's no, so they don't no stack. Yeah, no no stacking up and saying, well, I have two fire runes on my sword, so that's you know, it's actually oh four d six damage. Now it's just one one rune of each each type. Just covering um, your body in storm runes to be able to see every single person's future. Oh yeah, everyone has a disadvantage. <laughs> Anyways, uh, moving on, we do have another third level feature that comes along with this. This is called Giant's Might. And uh, as a bonus action for one minute, you gain the following features. You become large size if you're not already large size. You have advantage on strength checks and strength saves. And your weapon or unarmed strikes deal an extra 1d6 damage. You get to use this feature, this bonus action, Giant's Might, a number of times equal to your proficiency bonus, which you regain after a long rest. Um, as we're going to see uh, with uh, later features in this archetype, um, everything is going to kind of build on these first two things. Uh, but I think being able to 
I think the Giant Smite is more of a, a flavor. Yes, it does deal extra damage and gives you advantage on some saves. Uh, but I kind of view this as a, uh, a thematic. I'm invoking the, uh, the constitution of the Giants and literally becoming the size of a Giant. Yeah, it kind of makes me think of, you know, the, the Barbarian's Rage with the extra weapon damage and advantage on strength checks and saving throws. But yeah, like th thematically, it makes sense that you are, uh, you are attuning yourself to the essence of gianthood. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So moving on, um, at 7th level, we have the feature called Runic Shield, which allows you to invoke this runic magic to protect your allies. You can use this when an ally within 60 feet is hit by an attack, and uh, invoking this runic shield, you force the attacker to reroll and use that new roll. You get to use this feature a number of times equal to proficiency bonus, which you regain after a long rest. So we've seen features somewhat like this with other classes. It's um, kind of cool that you're getting access to this as uh, a fighter, as the, the rune knight. And um, it's one of those features that technically is going to be very useful. It's not just a... A, an additional big chunk of damage or the ability to attack four or five more times in combat. This is a, a, a tactical ability to protect your allies. So moving on at 10th level, we have the feature called Great Stature. And uh, when you hit 10th level, you roll 3d4, you grow that number of inches in height, and your giant's might damage becomes a d8 instead of being a d6. Now, I don't think this is the most exciting one. I think this is more of a flavor one. Um, just being able to do D8 instead of D6 damage with your Giant's Might um, and growing maybe upwards of a foot in height at best, not really all that exciting. Uh, however, you know, it's a it's a thematic thing. It's, it's flavor. At um, worst, you're growing three inches. <laughs> yeah. So not noticeable whatsoever. Exactly. Um... People would ask you maybe if you got a haircut or if you're if you're standing a little bit taller. But all yeah. in all, probably not the most exciting thing. Uh, but again, as as I mentioned, I think the what, what I like about this class is being able to do most of your exciting things at third level, right when you take this archetype. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, continuing on, not to put too much emphasis on the lack of excitement in these later <laughs> these later levels. At 15th level, we have Master of Runes, which allows you to invoke the runes that you got from that third level rune carver feature twice instead of once per short or long rest. So whereas before we said, yeah, at third level, you get to do this uh, once when you invoke them. At uh, 15th level, with the Master of Runes, you can invoke it twice per short or long rest. And finally, to cap this off, at 18th level, we have the feature called Runic Juggernaut. Your Giants might damage that uh, third level extra damage whenever you, you hit with uh, your weapon or unarmed strikes. That becomes a D10. Your Giants might size now increases to huge. And you also have an extra five feet of reach because of that. Um, again, not the most exciting way to cap off this archetype. However... I like that a bulk of what you get to do is in third level. Yeah, it's it's not exciting, um, like as as like a, a an end cap for this subclass, but you know, going from potentially medium to huge, and um, increasing the the damage to D ten is pretty nice, 
And getting reach is also very nice, especially as a fighter. Now you don't provoke opportunity attacks. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, it, everything is everything that's later is supported by what's given to you at third level. Mm -hmm. And I like a lot of these uh, abilities. Like you said, I think the fire rune one is very cool. Um, they all they all have their uses, right? And being able to have a, a whole bunch of different runes carved into your your gear and your weapons, uh, I think is really neat. Um, and, and and maybe a, a rune knight being very protective of their armor and their weapons because they've spent time carving these runes into their gear and it is a very personal thing for them. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Uh, offers some opportunity for some roleplay there. Now, you might be listening thinking, wow, with all of these different options and features and fighting styles and maneuvers, there's way too much to choose from. Fighter is such an intimidating class. I never take it because there's just way too many options to pick from. I don't know what to take. Well, Tasha's has the answer. And we, uh, for the first time, are seeing these... Uh, different battle master archetypes, these different builds, which I think is very cool. These are merely suggestions, by the way. These these aren't things that you have to do. Um, there's 12 different suggestions. This kind of reminds me of uh, video game character builds, or if you've ever played any sort of collectible card game, these are kind of like deck archetypes where it's like, yeah, here's, here's a suggested way to build this. You don't have to do it. This is just something that um, is going to be probably cohesive and work together both thematically and mechanically it's beneficial for you no matter what your experience level if you're brand new and are intimidated by fighter well here's a, a recommended pathway to take here's a recommended build um, or if you're experienced and you're still kind of intimidated by how much there is to offer here's some recommended choices for you just to give you an example of what this looks like in the book like i said there's 12 of them i'm not going to go over all of them because obviously you can choose whatever you want and call it whatever you want um, but how it looks in the book, for example, um, to build a, a battle master of the, the archer type gives a recommended fighting style, obviously, of taking archery, the recommended maneuvers, uh, disarming strike, distracting strike, precision attack, recommended feat, sharpshooter. And then each one of these gives a little bit of a description to kind of give some flavor behind it. Um, another example is the brawler build, where the recommended fighting style um, is, you know, blind fighting or unarmed fighting, two of the new fighting styles in Tasha's, or two weapon fighting. Recommended maneuvers, they have um, ambush, which is one of the new ones. Um, disarming strike, fainting attack, pushing attack, trip attack. Uh, for feats, it's got recommended athlete, durable, grappler, etc., etc. So uh, again, these are just recommendations of how to build a fighter. Since there is just so many possibilities for you to choose from, it's tough to figure out what's going to work well together. And these recommended builds make that a lot easier. You can look at these uh, more or less as a, a mapping out of how to build fighter in a way that's probably going to work pretty well together without having to pour through different books and spend hours planning out your build for, you know, the next six months. Um, this just gives you some recommendations. I think it's really nice. I'm glad that they included this. Absolutely. You know, um, when I was starting out actually buying my books and everything, I, I went ahead and bought the Player's Handbook and Xanathar's, and essentially that was really all you had um, in regards to starting material or source material for creating characters and i think that this specifically this um these two pages that they have in tasha's is so important 
and very, very nice for new players, especially ones that want to do fighting or do fighters. You can just look at that page and see what thematically works for you. And they've given you a path and a, a suggested path so that you're not doing all the work, especially as a new player. Buying three books as a new player and being like, I have to learn all of this is very intimidating. Yeah. Also, it's a lot of work to flip back and forth between different books and read different maneuvers and fighting styles and feats and try to figure out on your own what's going to work together. So Tasha just puts these suggestions together for you and says, hey, this probably is going to work pretty well. You could do it this way. You don't have to, but this is our recommendation. Yeah, I think that that's really cool of them to do. Yeah, so uh, I'm excited for Fighter. There's some new cool things. Um, I'm not typically a player that chooses Fighter, but I like some of these new options and it makes me excited to at least give them a try. So yeah. that's going to wrap it up for me with Fighters. Um, you are talking about Monks, right? What's what's going on with Monks in Tasha's? Yeah, so like Jaren said this week, I am talking about Monks. Uh, we're going to get right into it with the optional class features. Now, I was very excited to flip immediately to monks when I did open up Tasha's for the first time, after I went to clerics, of course. Um, but, you know, my, my most recent character that had died in a campaign, RIP, dim view of the Shifting Oasis clan, I was really excited to see what new options were available for monks. And the first optional class feature is the level 2 feature Dedicated Weapon. So what this is, is when you finish a long or a short rest, uh, you can touch a weapon and focus your key into it and turn it into a monk weapon for you until you use this feature again. For those of you who are unfamiliar, um, monk weapons are specifically two monks. They can be, their damage can be rolled on the martial arts die uh, that is provided on the monk table in the player's handbook. Um, some prerequisites for this feature is that it needs to be a simple or a martial weapon, you have to have proficiency in it, and it must lack the heavy or special properties for you to use. To be frank, I really don't see the point in this feature. Monks themselves don't really have that many weapons that they're proficient in to start with, and the ones that they have proficiency in already count as monk weapons. So I guess I, I don't super see the, the use of this feature. I guess maybe if you were like a dwarf or an elf that gets additional race weapon proficiencies, it's a little bit more useful, but it kind of feels that this just takes the wind out of the sails for Kinsei monks. Um, Kinsei monks are all about being weapon experts and weapon masters. So I, for me, it just, like I said, it kind of feels like it takes the, the wind out of the sails for Kinsei monks. Realistically, really anyway, this only matters early game because your fists are going to be doing more than any weapon outside of two-handed weapons late game. I think martial arts die is 1d10, so your fists are doing 1d10 by late game anyway. Wow, yeah, and anyways, this sort of feels like the kind of feature that is a, a one-and-done, right? You're going to choose, if, if you are deciding to do this, you're going to take one weapon, make it your dedicated weapon, and then forget about this feature forever until you choose a new weapon. Yeah, and... Unless you're a Kinsei monk or maybe a shadow monk, you're kind of just waiting for your fists to do more than your staff, like more than your quarter staff anyway. So like it is kind of like a waiting game. So I guess if you really, really want a weapon specifically to be a monk weapon for you that you're not already proficient in, have at it. But, you know, if your hands ever got chopped off, you'd definitely be glad you had this feature. 
Exactly. Just put one of those little skippets that we played with as a kid, wrap that around one of your feet, and there you go. <laughs> I'm proficient in skip it. I'm, I'm proficient in skip it, and it's coming at your face. <laughs> so moving right along is the level three key-fueled attack. Um, and what this is, when you spend at least one key point as part of your action on your turn, you may make a bonus action attack as an unarmed strike with your fists or your monk weapon. So initially, I remember writing the notes for this, and I was like, this is dumb. I don't like this, and I don't understand why they would have this. And then I read this again, and it's the, the part that makes this special is that when you spend a key point as a part of your action on your turn. So normally, you get a bonus attack uh, unarmed strike when you take the attack action as a monk. So now this adds versatility for if you spend key points, you can still have that unarmed strike. Um, it adds more options that for monks that may be casting a spell or using a feature with their key, just like the Way of Shadow or the Way of Mercy, which we'll see in a little bit, instead of making an attack with their monk weapons, they can still land a blow on the enemy and possibly doing a stunning strike or or what have you. So it's, it's nothing crazy, but it does offer the monk the ability to still do damage if they're using their key in a different way and not deciding, well, do I want to have two attacks this turn with my attack action and then my bonus attack? You can still have your bonus attack action or bonus action attack and use your key as the main part of your action. Oh, that's neat. So you're, you don't have to just dedicate your whole turn to spending a key point that isn't attacking. Exactly. Yeah, you don't, your, your, your turns are not either, well, do I want to use this feature or do I want to do damage? Now you can do both. Right, right. So uh, moving into the level four feature, it is called Quickened Healing. And as an action, you can spend two key points to heal a number of hit points equal to one martial arts die plus your proficiency bonus. At max healing for level four, this is only healing six HP. At max level, it's 16 HP. And you're spending half of your key points to do it at fourth level. Two key points later is not too bad, but I don't know. I, I think that this amount of healing could be better done by a cleric or any other party member that uses spells. I could still generally see its use if your party doesn't have maybe healing spellcasters or maybe you're doing a a two-party campaign or a one a one-person campaign which you know we'll talk about later when we talk about the um the 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 DM tools that are given in Tasha's but I can see its its usefulness but as an optional feature I would I don't know if I would take it. Yeah, it's okay. It's in a pinch being able to regain hit points sure. Yeah. It's not going to save you. It's not uh, something that you can apply to an ally, so it's a little bit less useful, but, you know, it's cool. Yeah, and I mean, monks being mobile and frontline attackers, they're further away than most party members can reach sometimes, so I guess having a small self-heal is useful, but again, it's not an, uh, an enlightening, whoa, I guess we really did need that sort of thing. Right, right. And moving past that, at level 5, you do get focused aim. So if you miss an attack roll, you can spend one to three key points to add two to the attack roll for each key point spent. And I think flavor-wise, I really enjoy the idea of a monk being so in tune with the key, like flowing through others and through their own bodies to find the weak spots to channel their key to ensure the strikes. And potentially getting a plus six to hit is a lot. Um, 
you're to spend three key points even later to get a plus six to ensure your hit that's that's pretty crazy um but you know i understand how frustrating it is to get buffed by an ally and then completely miss your attack especially if you have that stunning strike in your back pocket and you're like i know i'm gonna smack this guy right in the face with all this buffed up damage and then you miss so being able to be like all right well i'm gonna spend you know a couple key points and i'm gonna make sure that attack hits right exactly yeah that's pretty useful and I think this does balance out really well because you don't want to be spending key points on every turn in combat and asking a monk to potentially spend three of them is kind of a big ask, especially at level five. That's yeah, you... three-fifths of their key points. Exactly. So that does actually do it for the optional class features. There was a not a lot to look at, which... Kind of unfortunate, but they're keeping it simple, which, you know, monks can already do a lot, so they probably didn't want to overpower them with a bunch of new optional features. So the first of the new subclasses is called the Way of Mercy. Now, monks of this monastic tradition, they know that life is fragile and should either be protected when it needs aid or snuffed out when it is suffering. Uh, this monastic way makes me think of like a combination of an agent of the House of Black and White and like an old-timey doctor who makes house calls. They'll come to your house, but it's really up to them if it's an assassination or a healing that they'll be performing. So they're, the bread and butter of this subclass is called uh, the Hands of Healing and the Hands of Harming. And that gets lumped in kind of with the Implements of Mercy, which is... Uh, it, you get three things at level three. So we'll go over Implements of Mercy first and then get into the Hands of Healing and Harming. Um, so at level three, the Implement of Mercy, you gain proficiency in Insight and Medicine and the Herbalism Kit. And you also gain a mask, which is often worn when using these new features. So initially, I thought it's pretty cut and dry. If you're going to be a healer, then you're going to want proficiency in Insight, Medicine, and Herbalism. And... I do wish that maybe they had offered an option for players to maybe get expertise in one of those two things if they've already taken proficient in insight. I know I usually have proficiency in insight in my monks anyway because they're high wisdom, so why wouldn't you want to give yourself proficiency in that? Um, and realistically, the herbalism kit doesn't really see a lot of play in my experience. Um, so this could maybe encourage your DM or your group to generate situations in which that would be more useful. I like these masks. Yeah, uh, you can roll on the... the they give you a little table. You can roll on uh, the table for what your mask looks like. Or obviously you can design your mask yourself. But they offer a raven mask, a blank uh, and white mask, a crying visage, a laughing visage, a skull, or a butterfly. Uh, I mean, personally, I'm, I am always in favor of the long black beak of the plague doctor. I know, I think that's why I like the masks. The, the picture in Tasha's really looks like the Plague Doctor mask. Yeah. Uh, I mean, who doesn't want to wear a Plague Doctor mask and seem incredibly intimidating? Right. Um, the only thing is that it's kind of underwhelming because they talk about this mask being used, and spoiler alert, it's not. Uh, they don't actually mention anything about the masks in these later features. Uh, so this is strictly just flavor just flavor but it's a good flavor you know i think you know actually my last monk the the shadow monk wore a mask and because he was 
I wouldn't say he was an asshole. I will just say that he was a special flavor of person. Okay. He was a tabaxi, <laughs> and he wore a mask, and that mask was a cat face. So he wore a cat face mask over his own cat face because that's what he thought was funny. All right. He, he thought he was being ironic. So my last monk had a mask, and now these monks have masks, and I think that's kind of cool. So moving into the other level three um, feature that is the bread and butter of this subclass, the Hands of Healing and Hands of Harm. So the Hands of Healing is as an action, you can expend one key point and restore HP up to a roll on the Martial Arts die, plus your Wisdom modifier. And you can also replace one of the unarmed strikes from the Flurry of Blows feature to heal a creature without spending a key point. Um, the Hands of Harming is when you damage a creature, you can expend one key point to deal necrotic damage equal to Martial Arts die plus your Wisdom modifier, and you can do this only once per turn. And so at first thought, I think that the choice to spread out combat healing between multiple classes is a good idea. Um, obviously, a Mercy Monk can't replace the healing potential of a cleric or possibly a druid, but having a little peace of mind on the battlefield is nice, um, knowing that you don't have to worry about who has the potions or if the last and in initiative cleric can get to the wounded on time. Being Having an incredibly mobile monk being able to res a downed person is very nice. And also the ability to use the healing um, in place of one of the unarmed strikes from Flurry of Blows kind of makes this a little more versatile. Yeah, being able to do damage and spending your key point to do Flurry of Blows and also get a hit of healing in there is, is pretty cool. Um, and the prospect of harming and healing in the same turn is a pretty cool feature, especially if um, maybe you get hit by a polearm master enemy and you can get right in their face and deal damage and still heal back what they just did to you. Yeah, that, that seems quite strong. And for the Hands of Harming, I do think that adding the extra damage once per turn is pretty nice, but maybe adding something like the target um, can't regain hit points until your next turn or something. Like, if you're going to expend a key point for damage, I think that it should do a little more than potentially 9 damage at level 3 once on the turn. I think with the Hands of Harming, it's... I think inhibiting healing may be a little bit more on flavor. Um, but again, you know, I've, I've played monks before and I, maybe I'm being a little too precious, but I, I tend to think of yes and when it comes to subclasses. And this uh, does actually roll into the level six feature called Physician's Touch. Um, so this feature augments the hands of healing and harming level three features. So when you heal, um, you when you use this feature, you may also end one disease or one of the following conditions on a creature, be it blind, deafened, paralyzed, poisoned, or stunned. So immediately, already, that's very useful. Um, it, it builds off of the healing. Um, and when you use your hands of harming, um, you may subject them to the poisoned condition until the end of your next turn. So with the healing hands, they're able to end diseases or conditions. It's so useful. Um, putting the medicinal responsibility on the most mobile class makes them a speeding and careening ambulance on the battlefield. And 
really this is a flavor of responsibility that monks have yet to see and i really enjoy it um, i so far have nothing but good things to say about the hands of healing feature as a standalone feature in regards to the hands of harming feature maybe i spoke too soon about it being underpowered um, poisoning a creature can be a real coup when it comes to surviving the next round um, and for those of you who uh, are unfamiliar, the poison condition is that when a creature is subjected to the poison condition, they have disadvantage on attack rolls and ability checks. So for an entire round, all of those next attacks and checks can fail. So perhaps this level six feature has uh, put my own foot in my mouth about the level three feature. Um, I like that it does build off of that. I think that one could be quite good. I think the hand of harm administering the poisoned condition has a lot more uses. You know, I think you're going to be in situations more often where you're giving somebody the poisoned condition as opposed to ending someone's blinded, deafened, paralyzed, poisoned, or stunned condition. Yes. Realistically, I mean, if you want to, if you want to spend all of your key points in a fight, you could keep somebody poisoned the entire fight. And that, you know, like I said earlier, could be a real coup, especially if you are, um, if you're fighting a boss, the BBEG, or someone who's just a big guy with a huge axe, and you don't want any of those attacks to land. I do think it's kind of neat, though, the ability to, as a monk, hit somebody so hard and disarmingly that they are, like, literally poisoned. Yeah, they're, and I think fun flavor-wise, maybe you have, um, Maybe you have gloves on that have these like microscopic needles that are full of oh, poison. Gosh. You got your left hook is for healing and your right hook is for harming. <laughs> I call my left one mercy, my right one justice. <laughs> yeah. Kissing the biceps. Yeah. So as you know, as you had said earlier about um, hitting with harm or healing on the the flurry of blows that actually gets augmented at level 11 and it's called flurry of healing and harm so with healing if you use the flurry of blows feature you may now replace each unarmed strike with a hands of healing use without spending key points um, and same with harming when you use flurry of blows you can use the hands of harming feature without spending a key point you can't do it twice but you can still do it without spending the key point. So now it is a, a little bit more of a versatility option because it opens up the possibility of both being used in the same turn without taking up two key points without, all right, here's my hand of mercy with, you know, one key point and then spending another key point with flurry of blows so I can use my harming. Now you can use the flurry of blows and hit with both of them without having to worry about spending two key points, it's only one. Oh, wow, that is very good. So, whereas in the early rounds, they, um, you know, are, are come at the cost of key points, where in, at level three, your key points are pretty, you know, resource valuable. At later levels, you don't even have to spend those anymore. Yeah, well, the downside is that for it to be free, quote-unquote, to use, you still have to spend a key point for Flurry of Blows, um, so you wouldn't be able to use Step of the Wind or things like that to get your bonus action dash. But if you're up in the face anyway and you want to be doing some healing and harming, uh, you would want to use your Flurry of Blows anyway. So you won't really be using both every turn. But in reality, I guess you shouldn't be needing to. 
But I think that maybe having the opportunity to do so shouldn't have the big downside of spending so many key points. Still quite a powerful effect, though. Yeah, for sure. Um, Being able to have the option to put both of those in the same turn, um, or say you want to do something with your action and then still use your bonus action uh, flurry of blows. Um, If you take the attack action, maybe with a a quarterstaff or something, and then you use your bonus action flurry of blows, and you can still get your hands of healing and harming. So as we talked about before with subclasses, uh, having an end cap that feels uh, thematically like a crown or the icing on the cake, unfortunately, I think this one falls a little bit flat for me. It is a very nice effect. Uh, It is called Hand of Ultimate Mercy. This is level 17. As an action, you can spend five key points to touch the corpse of a creature that died within 24 hours and return it to life with HP equal to 4d10 plus your wisdom modifier. And it also cures the creature of any status effects such as blinded, deafened, paralyzed, stunned, or poisoned. Now, initially, as a resurrection effect, this is this is pretty well balanced um, because it you can only get this at level 17, so you're not just going to be resurrecting people willy-nilly throughout your campaign. Um, most resurrection spells that are offered to spellcasters, especially at lower level, they have a, a decent penalty, be it a physical penalty to the resurrectee or a material penalty that is uh, incredibly hard to come by, like diamonds, um, <laughs> rubies, anything like that. Um, and this effect only casts, is uh, one action to cast. There's only two other spells that have the casting time of one action, and that's Revivify and Wish. So it's obvious to me that the positives to this feature is that it requires no material components whatsoever, and it can be cast as an action. They are resed with 4d10 plus Wisdom modifier, potentially up to 45 HP, and the status effects are cured. The only downside is that it must be within 24 hours. The 5th level Raise Dead spell can reach into the afterlife for a creature that's been dead for 10 days, but if you look at that spell, there are major downsides for bringing someone back. I think they get like a minus 4 to basically everything, and it goes away after each day. Like Each day, one of those levels gets reduced. Um, so it is, it is a very cool resurrection spell but i think that the only thing that i would also like to see with this level 17 feature is a hands of harming element i'm only seeing hand of ultimate mercy i think there should be like a a hand of ultimate harming something like that maybe i i had thought about it and i thought maybe something along the lines of like being so adept at bringing a swift and merciful end to a creature maybe that if you bring like a creature to zero hit points with the hands of harming strike they can't be resurrected or become undead for an entire year. Something, like, permanent. Yeah, that would be kind of cool. That would certainly, like, give it the uh, the black to the white of this subclass. Yeah, exactly. I You know, this subclass kind of makes me think of very neutral aligned, maybe chaotic neutral, maybe lawful neutral, just a neutral aligned because it's all about life and death in a balance, being able to see that either a creature is suffering, we got to end it, or see that a creature has potential and helping it. So I think having the hand of ultimate mercy is just kind of like, well, at the end of the day, we want your people to be good. We want your characters to be good and raise, raise the dead, 
raise your allies. I think that being able to put someone down permanently and say, you are not getting resurrected for another year. Like, we're putting you in the ground. But again, this could just be my yes and brain when it comes to new features. Perhaps. They could have called this the hand of literally mercy from Overwatch. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, the hand of heroes never die. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I guess overall, initially, I didn't really like this monastic way too much. The The, the flavor was there. The theme was there. But I, I guess, I don't know. However, as I read more and more into it, and I saw how the features meshed together, I liked the essence of what it brings to the monk. The opportunity to help and hurt in a purely medical approach. Um, out of combat, the subclass specifically can offer some cool character choices when it comes to RP elements. Maybe like a, a Plague Doctor style character, an assassin with a god complex, or... Or like a, a well-intentioned monk med student that's just out to heal the world and hurt the wicked. I don't know. I think the RP maybe makes makes it more interesting than the actual kit. Um, but I'm not convinced that their kit is something to write home about. Uh, you see with the next monastic way that I'm going to talk about, um, a key point payoff that feels more effective in battle rather than still spending key points to do your main thing. So moving right into it, that next monastic tradition is called the Way of the Astral Self. So this monastic tradition is focused on the ideal that your body is an illusion and that your key is the real extension of yourself and using your key to create additional astral limbs and faces and bodies to access your enlightened form. That's at the heart of this monk way. So when you choose this monastic tradition at third level, you, you are allowed access to the feature Arms of the Astral Self. So as a bonus action, you can spend one key point to summon a pair of astral arms that hover near your shoulders uh, for 10 minutes while you remain conscious. And you can choose the appearance of those. They can either mimic your arms or be a different type of arm. Uh, while these arms are active, you gain the following benefits. You can use your Wisdom mod in place of making strength checks and saving throws. The arms can be used for unarmed attacks. Those unarmed strikes with those arms have a 5-foot increased range, and you can use your Wisdom modifier instead of strength or dex for the damage applied, which is force damage. So, immediately when a block of text is given for a low-level feature like this, I know that thematically it's going to be built on later, just like uh, what we saw with your Rune Knight. That huge block of text for, I think, level 3, we know that's going to be built on later. So, obviously, since this is the arms of the Astral Stealth, we can all expect that other body parts are going to come into play. And this, I think, personally, that the strongest part about these arms is the first part of the feature, which is using your Wiz modifier for strength and uh, checks and saves. Most monks that I come across or have been NPCs or, or like, leaders, um, they're more dex-based, and strength can fall to the wayside. So I think that narratively, it offers some cool moments when you're making those checks and saves with your astral arms. Maybe you're so wise and your, your wisdom is so in the forefront of your mind that your arms are taking place of strength and moving on their own. Um, and the fact that those arms applying force damage is so strong uh, force damage is one of if not the least resisted damage types so you're always going to be getting the full brunt of that damage through 
Yeah, and this uh, looks like this is built on your wisdom modifier, um, which, as you mentioned, yeah, allows you to build the monk in a slightly different way, and um, base it on on something that yeah, I guess. I don't know. What is your experience with building monks? Do you ordinarily build it on wisdom or strength? You, it depends on how you want your monk to fight. I I know that um, some monks can be very strong and strength based monks, but generally what you see is a dexterous monk, and the second thing that you max is your wisdom modifier. Especially if you are doing things, I, I think in the the way of the four elements and the way of shadow, um, things the, your DC is created by your wisdom modifier um also monk's ac is calculated by adding 10 plus your dex plus your wisdom when you're not wearing any uh armor so you do want to also bump up your wisdom so that you high have a higher ac plus i think the in the, the martial arts that you get at level one it gives you the option to use dex instead of strength for your weapon and uh, unarmed strikes so moving into level six, it is the, the feature that is available to you is called the Visage of the Astral Self. So as a bonus action, or part of the same bonus action that you used to summon the Astral Arms, you can spend one key point to summon the Astral Visage for 10 minutes. So the Astral Visage covers your face like a mask or a helmet, and again, you choose the appearance. And while this is active, you gain these benefits. Astral Sight. You can see normally in darkness, both magical and non, up to 120 feet. Uh, wisdom of the spirit. You have advantage on insight and intimidation checks. And word of the spirit. You can direct your voice to a creature within 60 feet of you so that only they can hear you. And alternatively, you can amplify your voice so that every creature within 600 feet can hear you. So what struck me as interesting first about this feature is that you can choose to have either the visage active alone or have the visage and the arms active. So this to me suggests that there's both in and out of combat uses for the visage, because there's no reason that you'd activate the arms as well as the visage um, in a non-combat situation, because you're spending, you'd be spending two key points to do so. Um, so bringing just the, the visage up, um, I like the idea that as a monk, you're summoning this visage on, over your own face that's like a projection from your mind that is augmenting your body and aiding in intimidation. And even though these bonuses only last for 10 minutes per like key point spent, I think uh, having vision in both magical and non-magical darkness is so incredibly strong. Uh, NPCs or enemy creatures that cast darkness is always a huge pain in the ass because there isn't a way to see through magical darkness other than maybe some homebrew magical items or the eldritch invocation of devil's sight. That's the only thing that we'll see through magical darkness. Um, so having the, the ability to see through magical darkness showing up in martial classes, especially the monk, is insanely strong. What I note about this, um, up to the features thus far, we haven't seen any mention of bonus attacks or um, additional damage die rolls or extra buffs to your attacks, which suggests to me that, you know, thus far, this is really uh, giving you some creative ideas for roleplay and for tactically maneuvering or for uh, just everything that's not combat related. Yeah, it is. It I I would agree that this is not a min max dump out damage sort of 
monk, I would say that this is either a heavy RP style monk or a if you really want to go through the enlightenment. If you if you want to go through that with your character, that your character becomes enlightened and you gain access to these astral parts of yourself. I think that offers really cool DM to player RP moments. And I do think that there are some interesting situations uh, that would arise that you need the third part of this, where you, um, the, the voice modification, being sneaky or talking to somebody in a large crowd. Um, so either you're, you're whispering to somebody that's in a large crowd or you're trying to address this large crowd, or perhaps maybe whispering dark secrets in the ear of a corrupt nobleman to convince him to relinquish his assets to your party. Who knows? <laughs> if you're hiding outside the window and you're whispering like, we're coming for you. We're going to get you unless you dump all of your money in the river. Like, you're just sitting outside in the tree and watching this man freak out. Like, oh, boy. I, I think there's fun, silly... that You know, not to dive too deep into it, but I, I love finding fun and silly ways to access some of these features. Like um, a couple sessions ago when my character in your campaign decided to tie a blanket to his shield and use gust of wind to toboggan down a mountain. Hey, yeah. That's the sky is literally the limit in terms of what you can do with some of those things. Yeah. Um, you could use this, uh, word, word of the spirit to do any number of things. Yeah. So moving on, uh, you have the level 11 feature, the body, yaddy, 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 yaddy of the astral self. I am just kidding. It is called body of the astral self. Uh, but when you have both the arms and the visage active with no action required, you can summon the body of the astral self. It covers the rest of you like a suit of armor. It connects the floating arms and the visage. Um, while this is active, you gain these benefits. So you get deflect energy when you take acid, cold, fire, force, lightning, or thunder damage, you can use your reaction to reduce the damage taken by 1d10 plus your wisdom modifier and you get empowered arms. Once on each of your turns when you deal damage, you can do an additional martial arts die worth of damage. So for anyone who is familiar with monks, um, you'll notice that the first part of this feature is a slightly different version of the deflect missiles feature that monks get at level three. Um, the, this feature is dealing with um, just the specific damage types that were listed rather than physical missiles that are being shot at them. So, for instance, you can now, uh, with these, the body of the astral self, you can use your astral arms to deflect a firebolt or a ray of frost. Or, if, I mean, if you're feeling, you can try to deflect a magic missile. So, huh. combined with the level 7 feature that they get called evasion, the astral self monks have an incredibly strong arsenal of damage circumvention uh, at their disposal. That's uh, a really neat feature. You, you could literally just never take damage with this. Yeah, I, I think especially paired with evasion, which, um, again, is a, is a, evasion is a feature at, that you get at 7th level if you succeed on a, a dex saving throw to get out of damage. You can take no damage rather than just take the half damage. So being able to outskirt some of this damage... Now it's not just untargeted damage. Now it is if, some, if somebody's being, if your astral monk is being targeted by a firebolt or, you know, a ray of frost, things like that, you can try to deflect that damage. But at max, it is only deflecting 15. So it's 1d10 plus wisdom modifier. So potentially some could still get through. 
Okay, still not bad though. Yeah, it, I, I still think that's pretty strong. Um, and for the, the second part of this, the empowered arms, uh, it's not anything new. A once per turn bump in damage can be useful. Um, I don't think that anyone's ever complained about dealing too much damage. Right. So, yeah, I think this is actually the only place where you see, like how you said you didn't really see a lot of like bumps in damage. This is the only place where you get um, some additional damage. And I would like to note that these benefits are only able to be accessed when both the visage and the arms have been activated as well. So this does stray away from the trend of selectability that we saw before with choosing either the arms or the visage to be active. To gain the, the body of Astral Self benefits, you do need to have both of those other things active as well. That makes sense. I mean, if you're, you're deflecting these uh, different energy types, these different damage types, um, or, you know, dealing additional damage with your empowered arms, it would make sense. You know, it's not this weird floating body that's <laughs> doing these things. Yeah. So you do have to spend key points. I think at this point, it's two key points to get the, um, to get the arms and the visage active, then to, you can summon the, the body without any sort of key points uh, or action. And this gets capped off at level 17 with the Awakened Astral Self. Now this is a thematic cherry on top. Uh, you can spend five key points to summon the arms, visage, body of the Astral Self and then awaken them. The awakening is ended if you die or become incapacitated. Um, and awakening these three uh, body parts, per se, grants you these benefits. Armor of the Spirit, which is you gain a plus two to AC, and Astral Barrage. When you use the extra attack feature that you get at level five to attack twice, you may attack three times as long as you use your Astral Arms to do so. And that's on top of the uh, awakening the uh, Arms, Body, and Visage features. Yes. So at level 17, uh, addressing the AC first, at level 17, you realistically should have an AC of 20 because of how monks calculate their AC. You should have a 20 in Dex and a 20 in Wisdom if you're trying to have that high AC. So at 17th level, having an AC of 22 is going to make your DM pretty irritated with you. In a as good a, way. As, as a, a monk player. with no armor. Yeah, wearing no armor, having an AC of 22. So not only do you have evasion and deflect missiles, but now you have an AC of 22 for 10 minutes. And on top of all of that, addressing the second part, having three attacks and quite possibly five if you use your Flurry of Blows feature is insane. Oh my gosh. As a monk, typically fighters are the only ones that get to attack that many times in a turn, and that's if you take specific pathways in fighter. Yeah. And um, I would like to note that you do have to use your astral arms to do so. So if you want to be doing bludgeoning damage, which is what your, your fists will be doing, you won't get access to that third attack. Um, you'll only be able to use force damage, and you won't be using your dex modifier. You'll be using your wisdom modifier for the damage. So that is the trade-off of maybe your your wisdom is not as high as your dex here at level 17. You may be doing less damage, but you get more attacks. So it just depends on how you build your monk and where you want the damage to come from, especially with the, the way of the astral self. And I think that all of the thematic congruencies balance out any sort of animosity that the DM might feel for this subclass. I think 
you know, everyone getting a cool sort of payoff at level 17 is really nice, especially this subclass. The This feature really feels like the icing on the cake. You know, the astral self has been built up and built up with each feature. And now at 17th level, you can awaken your astral self. You know, you have these arms and then you have this helmet that comes down as the visage and then your body, which gets awakened. And then you are now awakening them truly with your key. Yeah, and at 17th level, you have what? 17 key points? Yeah, 17 key points. So it's it's really not a big ask to be able to access this uh, pretty uh, powerful form that lasts for 10 minutes. Yeah, no, not at all. Um, by 17th level, spending five key points is no big not... Deal. Is, yeah, not a big ask. My guess would be at 17th level, you're probably going to need that 22 AC. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and here's the thing, is that you're only, you're spending five key points. Yes, that's almost a third of your key points, but you are gaining 11 different unique bonuses. And that's per short rest. Um, oh and at level 17, per short rest, you can awaken your astral self three times. <laughs> a full half an hour. And it, yeah, form. and it lasts for 10 minutes. So, I mean, realistically, you only want to awaken once per fight unless you're, like, incapacitated or something like that. Um so overall, I think this subclass is very, very cool. I, you know, thematically, I enjoy the idea that a monk of this way could, would even just choose to forego using any sort of weaponry at all because their astral appendages are far more useful and deadly than any sort of blade. I'd, you know, much like the last episode where we talked heavily about thematic consistency, I think that Wizards of the Coast did a really good job with this one in this regard. Um, you know, having an astral self that grows stronger with each feature and then awakens and becomes enlightened by the end, it makes for a really, really wonderful character and narrative moments. And that's not even talking about the fact that you are dumping out damage at the end with your possibly five attacks with a plus five dex mods. That's already 25 damage if you hit each time, not even counting the 1d10 that you're doing with your fists. With these uh, astral arms just kind of project out of your body. And they have a, a, a five-foot additional range. So you have a ten-foot reach on your physical attacks. You can a, stay out of somebody's uh, fighting range, your, a typical NPC or a typical enemy's fighting range, and still hit them. The one thing that I will say that, um, that I felt about this subclass is that it really outshines the way of mercy. And like just like we said before with the level 17 being able to spend 5 key points to get 11 different bonuses, it just feels like uh, this one is just far better thematically and the key point usage payoff is so much better cuz with this, you know, way of the astral self, you can spend five key points three different times to get 11 different bonuses. Meanwhile, the Hand of Ultimate Mercy, you can do it once per 24 hours, and it's five it's key a, points to do so. When your cleric could do the same thing. Yeah, I, I see where you're coming from, because I think you're going to be using the Awakened Astral Self, something that's very useful in combat, in which in D&D 5th Edition, combat happens all the time. You're going to be using that a lot more often than you are going to be using some sort of resurrection effect, which happens, you know, maybe once or twice per campaign. Yeah, exactly. So it, 
I, I don't want to harp on it too much, but I think that the, the way of the astral self really outshines the way of mercy. Um, I'm, I'm really hoping that people do play the way of mercy, though, and um, possibly use that thematically to create good character moments or, or have a good time with it. I'd love to see the, the way of mercy find some really good play and, and character moments, but at, at least right now, face value looking at the book, um, I'm, I'm not seeing where that could happen. But I'm, I'm very happy about the, the way of the astral self. I think that it is the idea of spectral arms and face and body floating, like basically just off of your body and fighting for you and with you is so cool. Yeah, I think that one's really cool. And that's basically all I had to say about monks today. Uh, anything else you wanted to say about fighters or monks or anything you felt about all of the subject matter that we talked about today? No, I, I think... Um... What we're continuing to see with Tasha's, with each of these new subclasses, is they all kind of start with something in the early game, in the early levels, third and fifth level, and they kind of just continue to build on that as the class progresses. Um, and I really like that they're they're building these thematic new archetypes that just kind of um, build on it, on itself. Yeah, the 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 layering starting with a nice foundation at third level or whatever level they start with and using features that compound and create a fully realized version of itself by the end is is the heart of what Tasha's is trying to do. All right, well, that is our show this week. Thank you guys so much for stopping by. And if you liked this episode, please check out our future episodes, which are released every Wednesday at 12 p.m. Central. And next week, we're going to be continuing our journey through Tasha's Cauldron of Everything as we discuss the Paladin and Ranger subclasses and everything that Tasha has to offer them. This has been Discussions in Dragons. I'm Britton. And I'm Jaren. See you guys next time.